And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. On the program today, I've got Mitch Horowitz, famed author of the book Occult America. And I know that sounds evil, but it is not. When I say occult, what we're talking about are the fringe religions and belief systems. And when I say fringe, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Uh, I'm referring to it, me personally at least, referring to it as the religions and the belief systems that are non-Christian, because those kind of get pushed to the outskirts. Uh, with our mainstream society, especially today. I'm talking about specifically today. That is how we think of these things. But the United States has a rich religious history. It's very progressive for, for most of its history because, especially early on, we were a religious sanctuary. We, you know, we had freedom of religion. And across the world, it was not like that. There, were, there was millions of people who came here seeking to escape religious persecution and as we learned in our last episode, the Salem witch trials were a case where they were allowed to they were allowed to take their ideas from the old world and persecute those who they found non-compatible with their current system. So it kind of goes both ways. Uh, the oppressed become the oppressors at some point throughout history. It happens all the time. Anyway, we are going to go through the history of America from the founding of the country all the way through to modern times, and I think you're going to find this really interesting. And a quick little tie-in, when, I'm, when we talk about the different belief systems, there's a little podcast I did called The Stell Experience about Richard Kinniger and his book, The Ultimate Frontier, which posed um, a very Christian, it, it had mystical ideas tied in with Christianity, uh, and he founded a community in Stell, Illinois, very out-of-the-way place, wonderful community, very interesting stories. So if you like what you hear here, I, I highly recommend that journey. Uh, the people, the, the journey that they went on um, is it's incredible. It's fun stuff, and it, it is, it, it's a, a microcosm, an exploration of a small individual community that is kind of part of this macro view that we're going to go through today. So, without further ado, enough of the jibba-jabba. Let's talk to Mitch Horowitz, because he's the guy you want to hear. Mitch, thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, so so when I, I kind of... Um, your book, Occult America, it was kind of one of those books that just kind of... I don't, <laughs> I don't want to expand your head early on in the podcast, but like kind of one of those books that kind of sang to me when I saw it in the bookshelf. Like lights oh, were on sure. over. And maybe it's just because they actually had it standing up with a light on it. I don't know if that had anything to do uh-huh. with it. But it's just kind of like, <laughs> I, I like the idea, and I, was, and I love the idea that, of like Freemasonry being part of the foundation of yeah. the United States. Um, and I wanted to kind of get into it. And, you know, it's it's one of these things that I think people are afraid to admit, but it's a really interesting mm-hmm. exploration into the history of you know of the United States. So, how would you describe how would you describe the book? What was your goal when when writing it? I think my goal at, at the book's inception was to defend the lives of people whose contribution to American culture is very often sidelined, who are considered carnival barkers or con artists, as we were talking about uh, earlier, and their capacity to shape American culture in dramatic ways goes unseen. Uh, For example, somebody like Edgar Cayce, who had a reputation as a medical clairvoyant in the early 20th century, he actually introduced into American life the therapeutic use of meditation, which is now everywhere. Uh, We call it mind-body stress reduction, and almost every physician and healthcare provider will acknowledge that meditation is a good idea for stress reduction, treating hypertension, and so forth. And that, 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 that notion had its earliest glimmers in American life life 
through the influence of an occult figure like Edgar Cayce. And the list goes on and on. That's just one very small example. So I felt there was something in the lives of these people that was really worth defending. They can't just be left to the values of the the, the, the cynics or those who find them uninteresting and, and who therefore kind of glance past them in history. Um, I also wanted to look at movements like Freemasonry, for example, that were so influential at the time of America's founding because Masonry was a vessel for certain ideas that touched the lives of founders, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John, John Hancock, who were themselves Masons and, and in being Masons were part of a radically ecumenical organization, were part of an organization that valued the search for meaning as it existed throughout ancient civilizations, specifically Egypt, Rome, Greece. And they very much wanted to associate the New Republic with that search for meaning and with the idea that that search for meaning with the principle that 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 search for meaning should be protected so you can see that reflected for example on the uh, back of our dollar bill the the uh reverse side of the great seal is that beautiful and mysterious iron pyramid surrounded by the latin slogan annuit septus noos ordo seclorum which roughly speaking, can be translated as God smiles on our new order of the ages. Everyone hears the term new order or new world order, and they think it's creepy or sinister, but it's in its inception, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, they uh, That symbol on the back of the dollar bill is not a Masonic symbol, but it was, I believe, inspired by the principles and the symbolism of Masonry. And um, in fact, Ben Franklin, himself a Mason, was one of the people charged with designing the symbol, uh, and and it was first produced in 1781. Now, that symbol represents Masonic values to its core, the idea that the protection of the search for meaning and that ethical development is really the purpose of life. And the founders were eager to associate themselves with those principles. At the time, those were Masonic principles. I say at the time because that's a more common point of view today, but it wasn't common in colonial America. It certainly wasn't common in, in aristocratic uh, Europe. So the country we live in is standing on a, a, a root work of influences, and part of that root work is the occult. Um, by which I mean the ancient pre-Christian spirituality that flowered back into life during the European Renaissance, that turned into Freemasonry, that turned into things that we call channeling and seances and divination and, and so on and so forth. All these influences took root in America and participated in the growth and the development, not only of the country as a as a legal structure, but it's culture. So the purpose of the book was really to defend these figures, defend that history, and give it a, a, a proper place of centrality in American life, in the American story. Well, you know, I like that, and it, it kind of answers one of the questions. Well, you can answer this question, I think, better than anyone. But, you know, when we talk about, and there's a lot of stuff in <clears throat> politics where people say that we're, you know, Christian nation. Um, but it sounds like we were actually not necessarily founded on religious principles, but more on um, like philosophical principles that had nothing really to do with Christianity or the Bible. Yeah, the notion that has developed over this past several decades that we have to state or, or argue over whether America is a Christian nation, it's off topic. It's coming at the question from entirely the wrong way. Of course, figures like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were Christian. It would be like saying that somebody from Iceland is Icelandic. I mean, that's just the way <laughs> the landowning culture worked at that time. <clears throat> but they were extraordinary iconoclasts. Jefferson himself talked about being an adherent to the original philosophy of Christ and every bit an unorthodox Christian, every bit opposed to the rule of clergy, to 
strictures and dogma and standards and doctrine and catechism. He was very, very blunt and direct about this in his letters uh, to John Adams, for one, and Adams echoed the same principles right back to Jefferson. Now, we're talking about men who were our second and third presidents, <laughs> you know. Yeah. George Washington, as I mentioned, was a Freemason. Masonry acknowledges the validity of all monotheistic faiths. That was very much a part of Washington's life. He was plain about that. These men were interested in deism. They were interested in Unitarianism. They were very heterodox figures. So it's insufficient to say you know, we're a Christian nation. Of course we are in our founding. Of course there are aspects of that in our culture, in our ethics. I, I, gospel ethics certainly were a central aspect of the, 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 the faith of the founding fathers. There's no question about that. But they created a document, um, two documents really, both in the Declaration of Independence, which was chiefly written by Thomas Jefferson, and in the Constitution, which took its First Amendment largely from Jefferson's principles of religious freedom that he wrote in Virginia, they created documents that essentially protected the individual search for meaning, which allowed the individual to go in any direction that, that he or she wanted, provided it conformed to the safety and, and the reasonable um, polity of the new country. So we're, 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 we're a mosaic, we're a melange of influences. If you want to look for America's founding philosophy, look on the Great Seal, which was, which was crafted in 1781. It didn't actually appear on the back of our dollar bill until 1935. You see the eye in the pyramid. You see the statement, God smiles on our new order of the ages. It's this notion that we are, we as, as a nation, are part of a chain of civilizations that enshrined and protected in various ways the search for meaning. That's the American philosophy. The fact that the founders were Christian, again, is as natural as the fact that, um, you know, Navajos were Navajos. I mean, it's it's a given. That's right. that's where the individual comes from. And gospel ethics were central to the founders' lives. There's no question about that. When I say central, I don't mean they always cleaved to them. Mm. Um, but I mean that, yes, that was a foundational part of their background. I don't see why we should have difficulty talking about that without having to sloganeer about America being this kind of nation or that kind of nation. It makes people feel powerful and it makes them feel reassured to say that. I understand there are people in this country who mourn the passing of certain old ways of life, and I mourn the passing of certain of those old ways of life. And we have to find ways to preserve our best values as our nation and as the world undergoes all kinds of changes. But the way to respond to that is not to sloganeer. No, that makes sense. Uh, the, the best thing I picked out of that is, I think, the, the title for your biography, which is The Melange of Influences, the work of Mitchell P. Horowitz, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I do love that phrase, because uh, it's very true. I think that that is the essence of America. Um, I, one, one quick thing. So, so the symbol on the back, it isn't the unfinished pyramid is not a Masonic symbol? It's not a leaf out of masonry. You found constituent elements of that in masonry. You would find pyramids in masonry. You would find all-seeing eyes in masonry. There is oh, one instance okay. yeah, where you found a symbol like that in a French work of masonry, but it's not a leaf. It's not clipped right out of masonry. But there's no question if you look at the, the slogan and the symbolism and its meaning and who designed it, masonry was very much in its DNA. Okay, that makes sense. Um, well, now let's get at... When people see the term occult, especially when yep. when put in front of America, uh, I imagine when this book came out, you probably got a lot of hate mail because I think people are unfamiliar <laughs> with the true term, truly, uh, of the ter term occult. Um, can you break that down uh, for me if you could? Sure. It's interesting. You know, I, I didn't get too much hate mail. I mean, occasionally I'll hear from I'll hear from the occasional you know fundamentalist who will tell me to go to hell. You know, literally sure, and figuratively. <laughs> and um, although very Christian you know, of them I have, to do that, by the way. Yes. Right. Right. I have a tremendous, tremendous degree of affection 
for, and I hope connection to, people who are evangelical Christians, because they're not cynics. They believe that this physical world is not all that we live in, and I I feel a, a fraternity with them, and I, I I believe very deeply in, in their search, and, and I share some of it. So I don't feel any division there in, in my heart at all, and I don't feel it in my relationships either, because I have relationships with devoutly religious people from within the evangelical world, who came from Pentecostalism, who came from Mormonism. I would more often, frankly, get flack and pushback from my own colleagues within the alternative spiritual culture, who felt hmm. that a cult is a dirty word that needs to be locked away in the attic like some crazy aunt. Um, you know, there are growth centers who invited me to speak who wouldn't have the word or didn't want the word occult in their catalog or on their website, and they hmm. felt it was a huge setback to their sense of respectability. And I, what I try to communicate to people is that I, I use the term for two reasons. The first is, look, it does have a certain romance around it, and I always grew up liking the term, but it also has historical integrity. The term occult comes from the Latin word occultum, or secret, hidden. And it was a term that Renaissance scholars used to describe the philosophies of the pre-Christian world, specifically Greece, Rome, uh, Egypt, certain certain non-Egyptian reaches of the Arab world. They were rediscovering ancient religious philosophies and manuscripts and ideas during the generations of the Renaissance and the temple orders and the empires to which these ideas had once belonged were gone. And religious scholars and translators were trying to determine a way to refer to these ideas. You know, what, what do you call them? So they used the Latin term occulta or occultum, which morphed into uh, the English term occult in the, in the early 1500s. And occult became a catchphrase for the mystery religions, the esoteric schools and temple orders of the ancient world, which although there's no, I mean, history goes in zigzags, not in straight lines, but that is the family tree that the alternative religious philosophies come from. Um, you know, it was rediscovered and remade and reinvented by alchemists and Kabbalists and hermeticists and various philosophers during the Renaissance. But that was the material that crossed the Atlantic and formed the roots for some of the religious and esoteric experiments here in our own country that turned into mesmerism and seances and hypnotism and divination, channeling, uh, and so on and so forth. The influence of Freemasonry, of course, came from Europe. So, uh, and you know, the movement of spiritualism or talking to the dead became very popular in America in the mid 19th century. The movement of mental metaphysics or mental healing grew out of that, or what we now today call the power of positive thinking. So I believe in hanging on to these terms, a term like occult, because it has historical integrity. It means something. It stands for something. That's why I use a term, as I just did, the power of positive thinking. A lot of people find that sort of embarrassing, and they associate it with inspirational literature that sits somewhere on grandma's nightstand. But the truth is, it, it does mean something, and it does speak to a public that recognizes exactly what that is or has some idea of what that is. I use the term New Age in a positive way, which I apply to myself. To me, New Age is therapeutic spirituality. I'm very aware that to critics, it stands for everything that's soft-headed and woolly-headed and unrealistic. It's embarrassing. But I don't think that ground should be ceded to critics. Uh, to me, New Age culture is a definable thing. It has a set of principles. It has a set of styles. Some of them may be annoying at times. Some of them may uh, prompt one to uh, say, well, I reject that. I don't believe in that. And that's fine. But it, it at its heart, it means therapeutic spirituality. Occult at its heart means this ancient esoteric spirituality that belonged to the bygone world, the antique world that reemerged during the Renaissance that formed the basis for our own modern culture of alternative spirituality. So when I say uh, occult America, 
I feel like that phrase, in addition to whatever romance it may have around it, is also truthful. It's telling the truth about where our roots are. But I run into people on the alternative spiritual culture all the time who want to, you know, curl up into a ball somewhere if I use the term new age because they think it's going to make us all seem like dummies. Or if I use the term occult, which is going to make us seem like we're all a bunch of black-robed lunatics, you know, drinking blood out of a skull somewhere. (laughs) And I reject that. I reject that. And what I try to tell my friends within the alternative spiritual culture is that you can call yourself whatever you want, you know, um, if you're embarrassed by the term ESP, which I am not, you can say intuitive, but it's not going to make any difference because at the end of the day, we're still going to have the same adversaries right. and we're still going to have the same criticism directed at us. And quite frankly, whenever I walk into a room and somebody peers at me over a wine glass and I tell them that I write and publish the history of occult movements or new age movements or that I'm interested in ESP research, I feel a great sense of relief because I'm not playing games with that person trying to dandy up what my interests are, but I'm being blunt. If they have something they want to say to me, they can say it. But I've never found that uh, those who are apt to roll their eyes at these topics um, are tricked or are fooled by, you know, waxing one's mustache and saying, you know, oh, heavens to Betsy, me, you know, I'm not new age. Mm. I'm interested in comparative religion. You know, I mean, it always <laughs> comes to the same place. And I think we should be brave in how we describe ourselves. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say that a, the term occult kind of got a bad rap because there was such a movement against it by the church to kind of demonize it or vilify it? Yes. To kind of, you know. For sure. So, so how would how did they do that? I mean, how did this come with such a bad term? Well, you know, it went through two. First of all, what used to be called the pagan religions and then were called occult went through two periods of disparagement, one in late antiquity, in the the early decades of the the church, and the second uh, in the late Renaissance when there was a backlash uh, by the church against some of these occult philosophies. And it's understandable. I mean, the the victor always gets to define the loser on his own terms. Mm -hmm. And there certainly was a struggle in the Hellenic world in particular, between Christianity and the pagan faith. Pagan was a a term that was devised really by um, people who were critical of the mystery religions. A pagan meant a a village dweller or a hillbilly, as we might put it, or like a country bumpkin, as we might put it. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It meant somebody who hadn't heard the good news of Christianity yet. And so it meant some guy who might have lived in a backwater somewhere who was still worshiping Jupiter and hadn't heard the truth. And so people who practice the old religions, the nature-based religions, um, the mystery religions and such, came to be called pagans. And those, those temple-based faiths were disparaged uh, by the church as it came more to power. And look, if circumstances had been reversed – the so-called pagans would have done the same thing to the church. It's just human nature. It's not that, you know, one side was the good guys and one side was the bad guys. It's just human nature. Um, religions, thought movements, economic system, the victor gets largely to define the terms on which the loser is recalled. Um, so in late antiquity, the occult traditions were associated with demon worship and so forth and in ways that those traditions never, never pictured themselves at all. And then, as there was this rebirth in occult spirituality in the Renaissance, eventually, um, eventually, the church started to reassert its primacy in the face of some of these radical experiments. It was still suffering from the hugely seismic waves of the Protestant movement, some of the people who were at the radical edges of Protestantism, at the radical edges of the Lutheran Church, were themselves engaging in experiments with astrology, alchemy, numerology, divination, what we would call channeling. And the church felt the greatly urgent need to reassert its primacy in religious life and also to continue to oppose Protestantism. So after Queen Elizabeth died in 1604, um, she was sympathetic to some of the esoteric movements that removed a kind of firewall of protection that some occultists like John Dee had enjoyed in England, in Central Europe, 
um, what is called the 30 Years War uh, broke out in 1618. And that was, in some respects, in some respects, a battle that pitted Catholic armies against Protestant armies. And that was also a grew in part out of a reaction against some of the occult experimentation in Central Europe. So that was a period of time and for several decades following where a trickle of religious experimenters who were then being persecuted crossed the Atlantic, made it to America, and began to found some of the mystery movements, occult movements here in America. That was true in and around Philadelphia, for example, which was a place of great deal of religious experimentation. So, you know, you can trace the family tree. There was a reaction against the occult. It was sort of demonized anew in the 1600s. But lo and behold, at, at the same time, you had the colonial development of America going on. And even though there was slavery, there was the beginning of the destruction of the Native American culture, ironically, Concurrent with that, there was also a flowering of religious freedom, relatively, relatively. Yet figures like William Penn, who was a Quaker, who had been persecuted when he was at Oxford. Well, you know, he comes to America, he's enormously wealthy, has a huge land grant, and he decides to found a city where people of all faiths can live together. So he founds Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And by the late 1600s, you have people fleeing religious persecution in the Germanic parts of Central Europe, where the Thirty Years' War just dragged on and on, and even for generations after, there was a great deal of destruction there. Well, they came to Philadelphia, this city of brotherly love, you know, and they stayed. And they were largely able to do what they wanted unmolested. The Shakers, who were a Quaker sect, known as the Shaking Quakers, they relocated to Albany, New York, where they were able to buy cheap land and found a small colony of their own. There was just about 12 of them at the beginning. So you have the story of these little grouplets who were experiencing persecution after the backlash against the occult revival, who were considered outsiders, who were considered religious outliers or aliens. They were in physical danger. They were in legal danger. Some of them made the voyage across the Atlantic to this place called the New World that that actually protected religious freedom relative relative to the times. And it's such a strange pairing of opposites because yes, of course, you had the destruction of Native American lands and and and, and the importation of slavery and horrible abuses of enslaved individuals, but you also had a development of a culture where religious radicals were largely unmolested compared to what was happening back in Europe. So that's why America became a special launch pad for the alternative spiritualities. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, America is unique in that because it is the really the only fertile ground at the time that would allow this type of thing to happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, makes it, it makes it unique. I mean, it, it is funny because, I mean, to go along with your uh, hypocritical kind of um, theme there, the, the last episode was about the Salem witch trials, uh, which mm. is kind of interesting because that is about persecution, religious persecution within the freedom to be able to come here to persecute. <laughs> you know, you know yes. what I mean? I mean? You know, what's interesting about Salem, though, in, in the context of what we're talking about is that the Salem witch trials did not continue. You know, it was this period of years with this horrible paranoia and mob violence and casualties. But unlike Europe, unlike Europe, where witch trials dragged on for generations after that, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, but not just there, in Switzerland and, and wealthier nations as well, um, these these things didn't continue. There wasn't an organized hunting and persecution of witches. There wasn't a sanctioned, a state-sanctioned killing of witches, you know, for decades after that. Salem, yeah, that's fair. shocking as it was, was actually an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and it was, I mean, it was like a, it was a year and six months or something like that between the beginning and the end of it all. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so we got everyone here, you know, you're talking about this fertile ground that is America. Um, so people start coming here with their different philosophies. And then, so in the book, it starts out with um, Route 20, which you say is the longest yeah. stretch of road, but isn't Route 66, or are you talking about at the time it was the longest stretch of road? 
Actually, today in the here and now, I think Route 20 is the longest stretch of uninterrupted road in America. Hmm. I know it 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 ends around uh, Eugene, Oregon, on the West Coast, and it certainly extends all the way up to Boston as as hmm. an old postal road. So I think that Route 20 which has taken different shapes and forms over the years as people connected to it. But in the here and now, I think Route 20 is the old, is the longest continuous road in the country. Well, that's the non-occult fact for the podcast. I didn't know that. Right. That's very interesting. Uh, <laughs> we always like to throw in a few yeah, sure, know, why not? quotidian yeah. facts. Yeah. <laughs> Keep everyone into it. Uh, right, right, right. So, so we have the, the burned over district. Uh, yep. which which you describe as kind of like a breeding ground for the occult. This is where everyone kind of met, and lots of people and movements came out of this. Can you describe exactly what, what happened there? Because I had never heard of this before. It's absolutely wild. The Burned Over District, very simply, is a stretch of land uh, on the perimeter of Route 20 uh, in central New York State. It, it extends from the city of Albany in the east to Buffalo in the west. And it was the birthplace of spiritualism, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, so, uh, the, women's, the women's suffragist movement, the American utopian movement. It was home to our earliest utopian or communal colonies. It was a place of such radical experimentation, and it was a springboard for everything that was new and radical and unusual in the nation's religious life and eventually in the religious life of the world. And it's, it's shocking because you drive through central New York today on Route 20 and it, it's this perfectly lovely, surprisingly untouched farming area with beautiful green rolling hills, beautiful freshwater lakes, the Finger Lakes, uh, occasionally punctuated and interrupted by sp- sprawl and, and strip malls, but but surprisingly untouched. So what in the world went on on this patch of land, you know, about that extended about 350 miles, you know, end to end, um, maybe 20 mile perimeter on either side that created so much religious experimentation. It was really the story of American migration. And whenever you find migration, you find new religions. And that's a fact. You can always kind of trace that on a map. Um, what happened is that land was home to the Iroquois nation, and the Iroquois made an ill-fated alliance with the British during the War of Independence. And after the colonists won the War of Independence, they had been looking, just looking for a pretext to push the Iroquois off of that very fertile, valuable land. And they found it because the Iroquois sided with the losing armies. And so they used that as a pretext to to remove the Iroquois from that land, uh, force them onto different reservations or territories. And the land was open to speculation, farming, settlement. A whole wave of relatively liberal New Englanders flowed from New England to central New York State, where, in fact, the farmland was a lot better. You had kind of rocky, rooty land in New England and the land in central New York State. I mean, in the warm weather months, it's like Provence. It is just magnificent. It's incredible. Some of the best wineries in our country are located there. Uh, So you had a whole bunch of New Englanders flow into central New York State after the War of Independence. And they left behind their churches, their congregations, their communal ties. So they built new churches and new congregations. And any religious iconoclast who was looking for a congregation or an audience went to central New York State for several decades in the early 1800s because that's where you would find lots of newcomers who were unorganized, who didn't belong to a given congregation, who didn't belong to any particular sect or schism. And so, and also there was cheap land there. So you had migration, you had cheap land, you had dislocated people. Boom, the Shakers open a colony there shortly after the revolution. And that colony turns into another colony and then another. And then it spreads as far north as Maine and as far south as Kentucky. And 
you have uh, – there was a, a woman who called herself the public universal friend. She was a channeler, a spirit channeler who lived in Rhode Island. Her followers decided to buy some land for her in the Finger Lakes region, and they named the town Jerusalem. And that the, the, the portent of that was not lost on them. They felt they were founding a new divine city for this prophet of God, the public universal friend. Her name was Jemima Wilkinson. The town of Jerusalem still stands in central New York State, and the house she lived in still stands. And she attracted all kinds of followers, followers that, that in some cases were very prominent people, uh, powerful merchants and judges and politicians. Uh, the name Ingersoll has very deep roots in America. The Ingersolls were followers of the public universal friend. Uh, the Shakers tended to be more of a poor movement, but the public universal friends movement was more of a wealthy one. So you had all these little groups and sects and schisms that were populating central New York State. And then all it takes is for one religious visionary like Joseph Smith to say, well, he's being visited by angels too. He's getting visions from God. He has been given a New Testament to report to the world. So he he produces the Book of Mormon in the year 1830, and that forms into an extraordinary religious movement. Um, people who are interested in spirit communication and spirit raps and seances and talking to the dead, they begin to crop up and report having visions of their own, you know, in this very neighborhood. And in 1848, outside of Rochester, you have two young girls, the Fox sisters, who say that they can communicate with the dead through a series of spirit raps. That gives birth to the movement called spiritualism or talking to the dead. Uh, a lot of women flock into the movement called spiritualism because most of the spirit mediums were women, and that provided an opening for women who wanted to have some sort of a civic or public or religious voice. And so it happens that, you know, a, a, a few dozen miles down the road from where the Fox sisters lived in the same year, um, you have the first Seneca Falls Convention for Women's Rights, which is the birth of the suffragist movement. So you have this incredible network of radical and progressive and avant-garde religious and social ideas just cropping up out of the burned over district. It was supposedly called the burned over district because suppose, according to legend at least, <laughs> one minister was talking to another and saying that he planned to go there and do some revival meetings and the other and the minister said to him, Oh, don't don't bother going there. You know, that, that place has already been been burned over by the fires of the spirit. In other words, everybody now there belongs to some sect or schism or church or congregation oh, or radical movement. There's it. nobody left to win over. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know, some people said it was because the place was burned over by the fires of the spirit. Nobody really knows where the term came from, but the most popular legend is that one minister said to another, you know, you're not going to find any converts there. Everybody belongs to something there. Now, there are still vestiges of that in that, in that region, but that energy, uh, that inventiveness by the early 20th century started to move out to California because there was just a huge economic expansion in California uh, just before and after the First World War. So, that's what I meant earlier when I was saying that if you look at population flows, you'll see where all the new religious ideas turn up. When you have mass migrations of people in this country, they tend to – they take new jobs, they take new homes, they take new lives, and they take new faiths. They go to new places and they check out, well, what – group or church or organization do I want to be belong to, be associated with? And once that started happening in California, California became the burned over district of the 20th century, so to speak. And, and that hasn't stopped. California has remained that engine. But before California took on that role, so much was happening in central New York, the New York Hudson Valley, New York City, because it was adjacent relatively to the burned over district. And it's wild. You drive through there today and You'd never know the ground you were standing on, but uh, there's one historian who referred to Route 20 as the psychic highway because he said mm -hmm. it, it just it, – it, it served as this great artery not only for commerce and trade and settlement but for religious ideas that spread all around the country. Well, and I think a lot of people – you know, like w let's talk about the spiritual mo spiritualist movement for a second because I think a lot of people think of these kind of ideas as very fringe and they're small groups practicing it yep. or – you know, yep. but but the, but the spiritualist movement. It, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was one of the first major movements in the United States where this, you know, this affected everyone. I mean, you you had yep. you know, Mary Lincoln, Mary Lincoln Todd, you know, 
yeah, the experience, yeah. you know, seances in the White House and everything. Right, right. It was funny. Somebody said to me recently, will Hillary Clinton be the first occultist in the White House? <laughs> wow. You know, they're so difficult to enter that, that question because the assumptions behind it are so weird. Right, right. But yeah, yeah, I had to remind him that, yeah. you know, Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln held seances in the White House, if you want to talk about occultism in the White House. Right. And I can also show you a picture, a portrait of George Washington in his Freemasonic robe with skulls and all-seeing eyes on it and so on. So let's back up the clock a little bit if you're interested in speculating about occultism in the White House. <laughs> you're going to have to go back a little ways. Um, but spiritualism was a very popular movement in the 1850s, 1860s, and beyond. Um, Americans were very turned on en masse by the idea that you didn't need some kind of intermediary or prophet to reach the the unseen world. You know, rather than reading the book of Daniel, you could do it yourself. And they were very turned on by this idea. And if you look at the founding figures of spiritualism, I mentioned earlier these two teenage girls, the Fox sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox. They were just little kids. They were just young adolescents. But the very fact that they said they were communicating with the spirit world through the series of raps, rather than making them seem less persuasive to Americans, it made them seem more persuasive because Americans were very aroused by the idea, wow, if these two little kids can do this, I can do this. Or if this poor kid growing up in the town of Poughkeepsie in the Hudson Valley can do this, well, I can do this. I'm an educated guy. You know, it was a very exciting notion to Americans that ordinary people were reaching beyond the veil. They wanted to believe this. And so a lot of Americans in the 1850s began to organize themselves into seance circles. The term seance is French loosely for sitting. It doesn't have any exact translation, but it was it was popularized by an occult healer named Franz Anton Mesmer, and then it was reintroduced into America by a guy, young guy who lived in Poughkeepsie named Andrew Jackson Davis. He was known as the Poughkeepsie Seer. People were sort of making fun of him when they called called him that, but uh, he liked the term and he kept it. So Davis introduces the term seance into American life. People start to form themselves into seance circles, seance clubs in the 1850s, and this becomes wildly popular. Now, I've crunched the numbers as best as possible, and I think it's fair to say that probably about 10% of free adults in America in the mid-19th century were involved with spiritualism in one way or another, were involved with seances. They subscribed maybe to a spiritualist newspaper, belonged to a spiritualist club. For some of them, it was a matter of deep, deep seriousness, and for others, it was more of a novelty. Now, there are records of Abraham Lincoln holding at least one and possibly as many as three seances in the White House. I say at least one because he did permit a reporter from the Boston Gazette to be present at one of these seances that he held, he and Mary Todd Lincoln held in the Red Room of the White House. Now, a historical question and something that the great biographer of Lincoln, Carl Sandburg, pondered himself is, why would Lincoln have permitted a reporter to be present at this thing? Wouldn't you find it embarrassing? Wouldn't you be afraid you'd look like some kind of a nut? What would possess him to invite a reporter? But Lincoln had a very shrewd political sense, I think, of what he was doing. And I, I look at this carefully in occult America. This was during the Civil War. And for some people, for some people, seances were as I was saying, a novelty, kind of like kids playing with a Ouija board at a pajama party. Now, for Mary Todd Lincoln, spiritualism and seances were a matter of deep, deep seriousness. For her husband, I think he was indulging his wife, and I think he was also just, it was something to try, like Richard Nixon was photographed trying to use a, a yo-yo during the height of Watergate. That's what presidents do. You know, they want to project an image to the public that I'm relaxed, I'm at ease, I'm not overburdened by the necessities of command or scandal. So this, I think, was Lincoln's way of sending a message that the commander-in-chief could sit back and enjoy a novel just like people in the rest of the country. And remarkably enough, 
the Boston Gazette story was actually picked up in at least one newspaper of the Confederacy, uh, the Macon, Georgia Telegraph. And that's a heck of a of a of a publicity coup for Lincoln because he's trying to project an image of unencumbered command. This is the equivalent of Obama, you know, letting himself be photographed watching the Super Bowl. You know, we got to show that the chief knows how to relax and knows how to relate to everyday people and isn't stressed out. You know, I think that's the purpose that this seance, or at least inviting. Uh, a Boston reporter to this seance accomplished for Lincoln. It got reprinted in newspapers around the Union. It got reprinted in at least one, maybe more newspapers in the Confederacy. He was projecting an image of the chief being able to relax and kick back. So there's no, I think that that's a really authentic historical record. Some people have questioned, you know, who was this reporter? They haven't been able to find the reporter's name in history. And that's important too, because it's tough to trust one's sources, especially when dealing with occult subject matter. So I sort of go into some of that in the book. You know, why can't we find this reporter? Those are worthy questions. But I do think it happened. I do think it was real. And there are two records, less reliable, but but quite vivid, I think, of other seances. And um, I think that, uh, you know, we, we have to understand this this part of our history. You know, everybody likes to talk all spooky about secret Masonic temples in the White House, and I, you know, I roll my eyes and say, yeah, I wish. But they don't pay attention to the real history. You know, kids don't learn that this was part of America's religious development. And in our Christian nation, Abraham Lincoln held seances in the White House, and he was every bit a Christian, and his wife was every bit a Christian. But this experimentation, this flexibility, has always been part of American religious history. Well, and, and you know, and I think that what also is shocking to some people is that there were lots of presidents. I mean, because kind of when you think of presidents being into the occult, that's kind of, you know, to me, that's the proof that this stuff was so ingrained in the culture. You know, you have yeah. you know, yeah. Reagan and Nancy Reagan are obviously oh. the pinnacle examples. Um, right. You know, you have the Bush family, you know, which were, uh, you know, you said uh, that Reverend Bush was the first Bush yeah. here who was way into what they yeah. called, the minister. Of the oh, economy. yeah. I, I mean, he, uh, for a time, lived uh, uh, about two blocks away from my home on the east side of Manhattan. There's a, a Swedenborgian church, which is a, a church founded on the teachings of a Swedish scientist and mystic named Emanuel Swedenborg, who was what we would call a channeler or a medium. Uh, on East 35th Street in Manhattan, you can still see it, uh, the year of its opening, 1859, uh, the pulpit was held by a Reverend George Bush, and he was the first cousin, uh, four times removed, to the Bush presidential clan. So those he was the most prominent uh, member of the Bush family, certainly in the uh, 19th century. Uh, that's part of the roots of the Bush family. Um, you mentioned Ronald Reagan. You know, Reagan, people are generally aware that Reagan was interested in astrology, and his wife was certainly immersed in that. But the story goes deeper than that. I, I go through this in my new book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive thinking movement in America. Reagan was reading and borrowing phrases from the occult scholar Manley P. Hall, who has been a huge influence on me. He died in 1990, and Manley wrote an enormous occult encyclopedia called The Secret Teachings of All Ages, another work that has become popular called The Secret Destiny of America. And I, was a, and I, I go through this very carefully. I've written about it in The Washington Post. I've written about it in Salon and in my book. Um, Reagan borrows phrases, actual phraseology from Manley Hall's writings. It is a telltale, unmistakable indication that he was reading and borrowing not only phrases, but ideas from Manley P. Hall, which you can find in some of his speeches. It's really quite remarkable because there's probably only a fraction of your listeners, if that, who have heard of Manley P. Hall. Uh, you can imagine how less known the man was uh, in the 1950s when Reagan began to write some of his own political speeches and first began to use his ideas. You don't just find these things by happenstance. You find them because you're looking or because somebody in your circle of friends or colleagues hands something to you and says, hey, Ron, you would like this. Check this out. So he was he imbibed these ideas at a younger age and more deeply than people realize. Uh, it doesn't mean Reagan was walking around the White House in wizard's robes. He wasn't. But, but it doesn't it does mean that mean, he wasn't, though. 
it doesn't mean that he wasn't. Actually. Yeah, we don't know. We we don't know. I know. I know. No, no, I do know from a personal story that um, the magician Doug Henning, may he rest in peace, was giving a a private performance for uh, the Reagans in the White House, and he he gave Reagan as a gift a little uh, a magic wand. And he said, Mr. President, I give this to you because uh, you can use this to create world peace. And he said Reagan was very taken with it, and he sort of was playing around theatrically with the wand. So, be careful with <laughs> that, that, that thing, That may be as close as we got to know. Right, exactly. You know, it resulted in nuclear arms reduction. So, um, it's not a toy. It worked. Thank you, yeah. Doug. Um, you know, but, but the, the, the fact is we have to understand that these ideas, these occult or esoteric ideas, they're part of American life. They're part of American history. They're part of American individuals. Yes, George Patton believed in reincarnation. Yes, Ronald Reagan was interested in, in astrology and the work of Manly P. Hall. You know, Yes, Hillary Clinton, during her husband's administration, was having sessions with some New Age thinkers and gurus in the White House. To me, this is not cause for scandal or embarrassment. Reagan wasn't embarrassed by it. He would talk rather freely about it. I mean, sometimes his advisors would go, Oh, Jesus, God, he's talking about astrology again. But he would do it, you know, and I admire that in him because that's our country. You know, we have to understand that we're not separated religiously by firewalls or by these sharp lines of demarcation. We are all, as individuals, uh, something of a, of a mosaic, just like the country is. Well, yeah, I want to get back to Manly P. Hall. I think we're going to close with Manly yep. P. Hall because I like him a lot. But I want to keep on this politics. One other person I wanted sure. to mention uh, was Henry Wallace, which is kind of an interesting yeah. story because he was, you know, part of the FDR administration. That's right. Henry Wallace has largely been forgotten to history, but he was Franklin Roosevelt's second vice president. He was in office before Roosevelt had named Harry Truman, who of course succeeded him. Wallace had first been. Roosevelt's Secretary of Agriculture, a job in which he was incredibly effective. He saved thousands of family farms during the Great Depression through introducing principles of, of, of crop hybridization and scientific agriculture to the family farmer. So he was an enormously effective man. He was also himself deeply interested in the occult. He was a member of the Theosophical Society, an organization I belong to today, uh, which was founded by um, a highly traveled eccentric Russian named Madame H.P. Blavatsky to explore basically different uh, religious philosophies, different world religious philosophies. Um, Wallace was was heavily involved with certain aspects of that organization. He had a professed interest in astrology, in reincarnation, in Buddhism, in Native American mysticism. Uh, he was involved with a, a theosophist and a Russian artist and spiritual guru named Nicholas Rorick, who was a very brilliant visionary painter and artist. And he probably got a little too close to Rorick and Rorick too close to him. And they had a falling out and uh, some letters, some very worshipful sounding letters that Wallace had sent to Rorick earlier in his career were exposed in the press. And Wallace was made to look like this very kind of foolish, mystical wanderer. It, it was very harmful to his career. It wasn't the the the... It didn't spell the end of his career, but it was a tremendous drag on his career. And for various reasons, those among them, he was replaced by Harry Truman. But he was he was such a remarkable intellect, and he had trouble understanding, frankly, as I have trouble understanding sometimes today, and I think that's why I relate to him so well. He had trouble understanding that people in the press and other people in politics couldn't understand the the seriousness of his search. You know, they would hear that he was interested in astrology or that he was interested in mind metaphysics or that he was a theosophist or what have you. And they would immediately label him as some kind of a nut. And he was absolutely incredulous over this, as well he should have been, because his attitude was, I am a scientific agriculturalist. I have saved farms stretching from Maine, you know, down actually south to south of the border through introducing these scientific agriculture principles. He was a beautiful orator. He was a great thinker. He was a great intellect. And his intellectual interest did extend to the occult. That was a fact. And he couldn't understand and refused to, in this kind of 
childish or embarrassed way, hide his interest in these topics. And, uh, you know, uh, in my own scale of life, I experience the same thing today. Uh, I'm 50 years old and I still have difficulty understanding or frankly, even remembering that people don't realize that you can have serious intellectual interests and be a responsible, grounded person and be interested in religious questions that go outside the, the given. And that was Henry Wallace, and he was a great man. He paid for his spiritual search. He paid for it terribly because he lost his reputation. But I write about him uh, in admiring ways and in critical ways in Occult America. And I, I feel strongly that he's a figure that students of American history should be aware of. Well, and also, just to tie it back to the beginning, he was the influence for putting the Great Seal on the dollar bill. In 1935. That's correct. That's correct. While he was still Secretary of Agriculture, he and he brought the idea to uh, FDR of placing the Great Seal on the back of the dollar bill. FDR loved the idea because he felt that this notion of a of a new order of the ages captured the renewal that they were attempting to uh, imbue across the country with the New Deal. And Wallace spoke of the need for a new deal of the ages. So the phrase "new order of the ages." was very uh, alluring and romantic to them. And so he and Wallace worked together to put that on the back of the dollar bill. It was only in 1935 that it appeared there. The Iron Pyramid uh, was unknown to most Americans as a symbol uh, before that time. So now let's let's move on to, to – let's close this with Manly P. Hall, which while reading you, – you, and you may be biased, I don't know. But when I was done reading your book, I found that this guy was – you know, as far maybe it just in the modern era, like he was the guy. You know, um, yeah. If you're an H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft fan, I mean, he's kind of like Doctor Armitage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's kind of like this <laughs> this old scholar of like ancient books that you know dangerous dark knowledge. And he kind of gathered it in this book called the um, Secret Teachings of All Ages. Did I nail that? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell me about this guy. Well, Manley was extraordinary. He was born in 1901 in Petersboro. Uh, Canada, uh, uh, Peterborough, Canada, city in Ontario. And um, he bopped around the American West uh, under the care of his grandmother for many years. His parents were divorced uh, just just after he was born, and, and he was raised largely under the wing of his maternal grandmother. And Manley uh, had no formal schooling, briefly attended the military academy in New York City when he was a young teen, took a job on Wall Street uh, as a kind of brokerage intern when he was uh, about 16, 17 years old. And independently, he began studying ancient myth, tradition, legend, mystery religions, and he very quickly developed an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge of the mythology and the traditions of the ancient world, the mystery and occult and esoteric practices that have spanned the globe throughout much of recorded history. And by the incredibly young age of 27, he put all of this into a massive, massive codex to the occult called The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And it was his greatest triumph, and in some ways I also think it was the greatest difficulty of his life because he had that strange and very mixed blessing of peaking when he was very, very young. Uh, that book is a masterpiece on many, many levels. It has flaws, it has inaccuracies, it has problems, but taken on the whole, it is absolutely masterful. But what do you do when you're 27 years old and you produce a work that would be worthy as the crowning achievement of any life? <laughs> well, right. he still did very significant and, and worthy things after that. He still produced books and pamphlets and lectures and speeches literally by the hundreds for many, many years. He founded a beautiful headquarters called the Philosophical Research Society in the Griffith Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, which is still there today. And I would encourage people to visit it. It has a bookstore. It's a wonderful place to visit. Um, Manley did all kinds of, of impactful things, including in 1946, publishing his book, 
The Secret Destiny of America, which was an evident influence on Ronald Reagan. Um, But I do think life became difficult for him in the later decades because I think he found himself in a pattern of just doing over and over again that which he knew how to do. Um, which was to put out another pamphlet, another article, another lecture, another speech. But his capacity for organizing vast amounts of information and recorded history of religious and esoteric ideas, I think is almost unparalleled in in, in our in, in modern history. And I publish uh, what is called a reader's edition of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which I publish at Penguin Random House, uh, which I first put out actually in 2003. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the unabridged text of the original book. And I personally, and with great care and meticulousness, abridged the illustrations. There were simply too many to go into a compact reader's edition, but I kept every one that is vital to the understanding of the text. Now, the original Secret Teachings of All Ages, I mean, it is the size of a small coffee table. It's enormous. And I was able to, I think, with great faithfulness to the original, um, reduce the book not in in content, but in size, to a very neat, tidy, readerly edition so that you can read the whole thing uh, or read it electronically. And and previously, the book was unavailable to mainstream readers. So that's my proudest achievement in publishing, to have worked on that book. And Manley Hall was was a hero to me. Uh, I also see him as a person who, who had who had great drawbacks, one of which is he had to deal with the reverberations throughout the rest of his life at, at peaking so very, very young. We see that happens to a lot of people. And when that happens, uh, it can be very difficult to figure out, my God, you know, what am I supposed to do with the remaining plurality of my years? And I think that was difficult for him. I mean, I think it's difficult for most sports figures that we talk to, or yep, that we deal with. For sure. Well. Um, for sure. I want to mention two other things with Manly P. Hall that I found interesting. Number one, he hypnotized Bella Lugosi. Yes, right on. That's right. That's right. And you can even see a little clip of it on YouTube. There was a Bella Lugosi movie called Black Friday. And as sort of a publicity stunt, the producer said, hey, why don't we have Manly hypnotize Bella Lugosi and Bella will do part of his performance under Manley's hypnotic control. So Bella supposedly in one scene is he's imprisoned in a closet and he's afraid he's going to suffocate. So uh, he starts to get hysterical and bang on the door. And uh, according to movie legend, Bella really believed that he was trapped suffocating in a closet and he burst out and he started to destroy the set. Uh, Whatever it is that happened, he and Manley did become close friends after that and they would spend time together. They listened to classical music together. Um, Bela Lugosi uh, married his his final wife in the 1950s at Manly P. Hall's Holiday Home. Uh, if you watched and enjoyed the movie Ed Wood, uh, it was that Bela Lugosi that, that was... Yeah, that was pals with Manly Hall. So, you know, Bella would <laughs> presumably, you know, shoot up heroin and the two would sit listening to classical music together. You know, and, yeah. uh, uh, they were close. I mean, it's they were both Saturday. cultured men. They were both slightly strange. And um, uh, it was a very lovely friendship, actually. Uh, and the other the other thing I wanted to mention is that he also really um, valued the work uh, of Sir Francis Bacon which I have yeah. three podcasts about Sir Francis Bacon. Oh, boy, you may be the only guy in uh, digital history who has three podcasts on Francis Bacon. Well, I I've, like this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was wow. the same, it was the same guy. kind of show. <laughs> it was the same guy who tied, this is uh, Richard Wagner. You can go back and check it out. I did one originally on the Winchester Mystery House and its Masonic connections. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. um, sure, sure. And then one on Oak Island, a, a special thing on Oak Island. And fr- uh, and the famous Oak Island, yeah. Bacon's yeah. ties to Oak Island. Uh, as well as um, whether or not he wrote the Shakespearean documents. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bacon was a figure of, of tremendous interest and, and love for Hall. Um, he viewed him as an esoteric visionary who had encapsulated many of the ideas of the Hellenic mystery schools and movements in his parables and, and writings. And yeah, Bacon Bacon was a great hero to him. He, I think he... What is it? He he begins the secret teachings of all ages with a quote, an epigraph from uh, Bacon, which says, uh, "A little philosophy 
um, let's see, a little philosophy turneth men's mind uh, uh, to rationality, sometimes to atheism. Much philosophy turneth man's mind to God. Oh, I like that. And that's how he starts the book. Yeah, he uses that epigraph from Francis Bacon. Well, this has been absolutely educational, Mitch. I, 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 never before, and this is not being hyperbolic in any way, I think we've only scratched the surface of your research. Uh, this is an incredible you. book, Occult America. Thank but you. you do tons of other things. And where can people find you? What else do they do? How can they, it, how can they take in all that is Mitch Horowitz? Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, it's it's very simple. You just throw my name into Google. You'll never be able to get rid of me. And, uh, there's lots that you can find in terms of videos and articles and books and programs and audio programs. Um, likewise, if you throw my name into Amazon, you can go to my website, MitchHorowitz.com. Just my name, one word, MitchHorowitz.com, and you can find all kinds of links, articles, other things, videos that may be interesting. My email is up there, my real, actual, bona fide email. I don't believe in hiding from people, so if anybody wants to reach me, they can drop me a line through the website. That's how I got you on the show. It's just that easy. It's just that easy. <laughs> Mitch, this has been incredible, educational, every adjective, adjective I can think of. Thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you want to check out additional episodes including a bonus episode to this with Mitch Horwitz about superstition. Go to fascinatingnouns.com. Check out the archive page where all the entire library of Fascinating Nouns is free for you to peruse and listen to at your own leisure. Also, at the bottom of the page, you can check out all the social media feeds. That includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, all that stuff. And if you want to subscribe, I encourage it to go to iTunes. Check out Fascinating Nouns on iTunes and also on Stitcher. Thank you for your support. End of transmission.